Welcome to Tethered, where we have conversations connecting faith and culture. I'm Bill Falk, one of your hosts with Sunshine. In this episode, we're going to talk about an important value that has the power to change your vocational, relational, spiritual, and even cultural environment. If you're struggling at work with a coworker, a spouse, a child, or family member, it could be the result of this one ingredient, this one value that is missing. It literally has the potential to make an immediate impact on your or in your situation. That value is honor. Where does honor fit into your life right now, in your relationships? Where do we find honor in the midst of a cancel culture? What happens when there is no honor? How can you and I create a culture of honor? Well, today we are very honored, no pun intended, to have two friends, two guests on the show uh, with Sunshine and I, uh, retired Colonel Tim White from the Air Force and former Captain in the U.S. Army Chris Spence. It's a, a privilege and honor to have them with us on the show, and they're going to share their stories with us and talk about uh, this idea of honor. So I want to say welcome to Chris and Tim to the show. Thanks for being on Tethered. Thanks, Bill. It's really yeah, good to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. Guys. Yeah. So again, it's, uh, you know, I couldn't think of a better way to have some military veterans on the show and, and talking um, about honor. And, you know, both of you served in different branches uh, of the military. But one of the things that we love to do on this show is a huge part of our, of our show is, is to have people share their stories. And so just start with you, Chris, just love to hear you kind of share your story of how you kind of grew up and how you ended up in the military, what that experience was, what was like, was that kind of something that you always thought you were going to go into the military? Um, and same thing with you, Tim, but I guess Chris, will just go ahead with you first. I grew up in uh, Miami. I was a child of a single mother and um, I really at the, early on didn't have any idea I was going to go into the military. Um, I think my first exposure to the military was that um, I had a, a half sister who went into the Army Reserve and she brought home some cool pictures and patches. And then I, I lived uh, I lived in the in the age when G.I. Joe was a great cartoon. So I watched it after school all the time and, you know, get the usual toys and played with the toys. And of course, you know, all boys run around, you know, playing World War Two and stuff. But I think um, it was just kind of in the background, just like being a firefighter, being a policeman, you know, all the typical, you know, stereotypical jobs that kids know about from adventure movies. And um, when I was in high school, my mom sacrificed and sent me to a really good private prep school that was on the other side of town. And um, when I was there, they had college counseling. They're like, you know, what do you want to do for college? And I really had, you know, no idea because even right now, my daughter's applying to college and we get a million brochures and I'm like, wow, yeah, there's a million colleges. It just so happened that um, one of the members of my high school football team actually ended up going to West Point and uh, he came back and talked a little bit about it. So when I was sitting with the guidance counselor, even though I think I had a, not the most stellar GPA, I think it wasn't um, Harvard GPA, but I sat there with my college counselor and I said, you know what, I, I want to, might want to go to West Point. So he said, well, why don't you apply? and kind of started going through the application process and it looked like there was a chance but then when i looked at what was involved in that it said oh by the way when you go to west point you then need to serve in the army for five years after and i was like i'm not that sure about <laughs> five years in the army after after that so what i did is actually um i decided to join the army reserve there was a program where you could be a high school junior and then you could go to army basic training 
Then you'd come back and finish your high school senior year, and then you'd go to advanced training. And I just took advantage of that. I went to basic training, and although I was really homesick, I found out that I, I really enjoyed it enough to say that, hey, maybe West Point's an option. So I returned back, I applied to West Point, and I actually got in, and um, that's probably been the most defining professional experience of my entire life is going through West Point and being an Army officer. Hmm. Now, your son's at West Point now, isn't he? He is, yeah. My, 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 actually, so I, I graduated in 1994. My little brother, Sean, actually went to West Point, graduated in 1998. He's still in the Army. He's lieutenant colonel up at the Pentagon now. And now my son, son Brandon, is finishing up his wow. plebe year at West Point right now. Wow. And you also have two daughters. Do um, one is junior. Yeah, so Jasmine is a junior in high school, getting ready to become a senior. She honorably served one year in the Ridge Point Marine Corps <laughs> Junior ROTC Ooh, yeah. program, um, which I kind of make all my kids do to understand the military. Yeah. And then we've got a, a bonus little five-year-old firecracker named Christina. Yeah, she's yeah. a firecracker. So. Um, so you went through, uh, you really enjoyed that experience at, at West Point. I know I've heard you, you talk about that quite a bit. I did so. not enjoy it. Oh, you didn't? No. no it's, well, maybe, Probably maybe, the most miserable me, way to do college. Let, I, let, me, let me rephrase that. You've, you've talked about the benefits of it. Let's oh, yeah. better say that. Yeah. That, I mean, um, I, well, to, to, to parse that, I, yeah. I didn't enjoy it, but I completely appreciate it and would never do anything differently. I think yeah. um, it, for, for young men and like in our culture, like we don't really have a way of making men in our culture. And mm. like I conceive a difference even between my daughters and, and my sons as they build their identity throughout their formative years. And the girls seem to be much more secure in exactly who they are. The boys are kind of competing to figure out who they are. And, mm. you know, I think that they trail behind in maturity a little bit. And I think that um, what I've seen in the military, both at West Point and in enlisted military it helps to accelerate the maturation. Um, it helps you to kind of close that gap and really grow into responsibility. Well, what is it about the academy that it does that? Um, I think it's just the fact that um, there are expectations that there is a standard that you will adhere to. And there aren't those expectations in other elements of our society as to there being a standard that you need to hold to. Hmm. Then maybe also, would you say that like being having being in a culture that that values that standard? Yeah, you know, so it's like it's not like you hey just on your own you need to try to follow the standard, but you're actually in an environment where yeah that expectation to follow that that standard. Absolutely, I didn't I didn't notice that when I was a young man, but now as I look back and watch Brandon, I can see the difference that the culture that you're in makes. You know, he's he's always been at his core a good kid and a smart kid. But when you're transported out of, you know, the normal high school environment where a lot of it's about me and how much money am I going to make and how do I get by and get what I want to make as quickly as possible with minimal effort to all of a sudden he's in an environment with all people who are held to a certain standard and are caused to push themselves. You saw him kind of flip a switch and all of a sudden he is maximizing his potential mm. in a way that I don't think he would at an ordinary school. Mm. Now, I mean, many kids can do great in ordinary school, but um, the culture does make a difference. Mm. So when you graduated from West Point, you had you said it was five years that you were supposed to give and you gave more than that. But mm. tell you know, describe kind of your experience out of West Point. Actually, in um, I guess you went in as, a, as an officer at that yeah. point. So what was that, uh, your experience like? So um, I, was a, I was an infantry officer. So I went through the, the basic schools, uh, you know, basic infantry training, um, airborne school, um, ranger school. And then um, I led an infantry platoon. My first job was leading an infantry platoon of 36, 36 people at Fort Hood, Texas. 
Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, it, the, the military is a really challenging job. I think a lot of people who are civilians think that the military is a bunch of robots where like, you know, everyone hmm. just doesn't think independently. They just follow orders and you have to be able to follow orders. But it's really actually the place where I've seen the most individual ability for individual initiative and values to make to make a difference. So, um, you know, I got my initial leadership experience with a with a platoon of soldiers and um, really, really enjoyed it. And then I went on to a couple other jobs as a lieutenant, as an executive officer, um, and um, got to be a, a, a battalion operations officer. Decided I really liked it. Um, and so I went back to advanced training and um, got to spend, after advanced training, spent a year in Korea, which was really my real first exposure to the world. Uh, I went over to Asia, lived in Asia for a year, got to travel to 12 different countries in Asia. Also got a chance to later on see Europe. So the military is a gateway for us to get out of just the American culture and see the the myriad of people that are out there. Um, long story short, I ended up um, in a very weird circumstance. In order to, to uh, live close to my brother, I ended up returning to Fort Hood. And I actually ended up, which never happens in military, commanding the same company I was a lieutenant in. And so I got to command that company. And um, as I guess the pinnacle of my career was we deployed to Iraq in 2003, and I led the company um, for about eight months at that time um, in, in Operation Iraqi Freedom. Hmm. Was that a life-changing experience to say, you know? Uh... Yeah, it, it definitely was. It gives, you, it gives you a whole different perspective. I mean, going back to my thoughts on the military, you know, like the G.I. Joe cartoonish thoughts of it, um, I think the, one, the biggest life-changing thing is when you get out there, we were among the Iraqi people. They're good people in a bad situation. And when you see the humanity of the people that are there and you realize the way it works and, and, and the situation that puts me in charge of an 18-year-old kid from you know, Little Rock, Arkansas, who's never been outside the United States with a gun facing down an 18-year-old, 15-year-old kid who's from Iraq who, for whatever reason, has, has a gun in his hand it really, really calls home the humanity of it. And so I think the biggest thing I carry back from that, from that tour in Iraq is that we as Americans need to understand better what's going on with our foreign policy. And we shouldn't just be bumper sticker patriots of rah, rah, support the troops. And, you know, kind of like we cheer on the Houston Texans, we should really understand that we're, we're, we're taking mother's children and putting them against other mother's children. And um, that really struck me. And that's what I really remember mm. coming back. So what, now, now, how did you end up leaving the military? Uh, um, family. Um, family. I, I really enjoyed my career um, as, a, as a young single officer. And um, I, <laughs> through, through the course of um, my travels, I actually met my wife. And uh, she changed my life. Um, I think I met her in um, May and then married her about 11 months later. And she came back to the States with me. She's from the Philippines, wonderful lady named Zarina. I was a company commander at the time, and I had to go on a deployment for a 30-day training exercise. And it hit me the first time I'm out there. I'm like, wow, this is different. Like, you know, I really miss being home. And so um, then we came back. We had our first son. And when I went to Iraq, I think my son was, um, see, he was born in July. I went in the following March. So he was nine months old. And, um, you know, someone said this to me once is, you are replaceable everywhere in every role you fill in life except for two places um as a husband and as a father 
And so I knew that when I gave up command of my company, they had another great captain. I actually knew him, and he, he was a great guy who took over the company. And I know after him, another guy took over the company and, vote, and, damn, damn, and down the road. But, um, but replacing a husband or father is, is much more difficult. And then what I've learned subsequently is I've traveled back to Houston and learned more about scripture and learned more about my faith is we're also all individually replaceable in what God wants us to accomplish in this world, you know? So I, I trust in God and the path for me was not a 20 year career. And in, in the lessons I learned in the army and kind of what I've learned subsequently, I feel like he's crafting me to be aligned with his purpose and to fulfill my unique calling, what he created me to be. And so it was really a combination of things, but um, I, I'm very grateful for everything I learned in the military and how I can apply it to being on mission and fulfilling my role in the body of Christ. At the time, the decision to leave was based on family reasons. Thank you for, for sharing all that. And you know, we'll, we'll dive more into to some of that stuff, but um, retired Colonel Tim White um, in the Air Force, so different branch, but <laughs> just share your story, how you, you grow up, you know, wanting to fly a plane or, you know, how did you end up in the, in the Air Force flying planes and just kind of tell us your journey, your story? Uh, you know, I listened to uh, Chris over here. First, thank you for having me on here. But mm -hmm. uh, I listened to, to Chris's story and uh, in doing so, I noticed it doesn't matter who you are, where you're going. A lot of the stuff seems very similar. Uh, I come from a family. I'm 10th of 11 in wow. my family. Uh, I've got five older brothers uh, the primary uh, job in our family uh, was to be police officers. Uh, my father was a chief of police at one point, moved on to be a director of security for Humana. And uh, my brothers, uncles, brother-in-laws, all police officers, or not all, but many of them. And it was expected of me to do the same. Well, being the 10th of 11, I was the youngest boy. I was also the cut up, the card, the guy that could get away with it. Because by that point, you, my parents, I, I don't think they stopped caring. They just stopped trying as much because, you know, they, they got tired. Hey, let the older kids handle the younger kids type thing. And I got away with murder. <laughs> um, so I was the one that always wanted to play around and party around and have a good time. And uh, we lived in Daytona Beach. I grew my hair really long and blonde and surfed and partied and for me, life was real simple. It was, you know, go to the beach, go to work, go to the nightclubs, sleep, repeat. And uh, somewhere in there, I guess, rents because, yeah, it's just that. <laughs> but uh, that's pretty much all I wanted to do. I was in high school keeping my 2.0 GPA, you know. Uh, I really don't think by this point my parents ever looked at our, uh, credit, at our, credit, uh, at our report cards anymore because uh, by that time they were just they were gassed. I mean, mm -hmm. they, they were getting a little bit older in age and they were gassed. Yeah. So uh, my grades weren't good. I didn't plan on going to college. Uh, so I finished up high school and working in a restaurant, making fairly good money for the time. So that just meant I could go out a lot more. As long as I had enough money to pay my car payments, I was good. We had a rule in our family. When you reach 13 years old, you got a job. And you paid for your own clothes for everything else because it was a machine at that point, a very well-oiled machine. And uh, I come from a lineage of service, though, other than the police side of it, uh, going back to my father's 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 father's. I mean, going back to the Civil War here in the United States, the, uh, my family has served in Civil War, World War I, World War II, Vietnam, 
And then I came in and uh, I was in both Gulf and Iraq and well, in Iraq and Afghanistan and all throughout the Gulf Horn of Africa. Um, I had 16 deployments under my belt. But uh, the way I got to that, because I fast forwarded through all the middle (laughs) stuff, is though I wasn't a big Christian at the time. Um, Sure, I went to church, you know, occasionally and Catholic. Well, that's why there were so many kids. But um, so I I digress on that. But uh, so, you know, I wasn't really into all of that. But as I look back in hindsight, God was there for every bit of what made my life happen the way it did. Um, I was going to enlist and then decided not to because they wouldn't promise me a certain position. I would go into general area and I said, well, don't you need trash collectors? And they said, yeah. I said, well, I don't want to be that. So I said, no, thank you. And uh, then I decided to go to college. Out of all of my family, I was the first one to, to go to college. And my oldest brother said, there's no way you're going to make it through. Um, I have ADHD and uh, uh, causes some issues with me. So my nickname was Timmy Dumb growing Mm. up. And, you know, I just had to fight past it. Mm. Um, I have trouble with reading. I have dyslexia. And uh, so there were a lot of challenges there for me. And so everyone said, there's no way this is going to happen, which just fueled me to to try even harder. Hmm. So I went off to college and uh, I went through ROTC. Uh, now there are many ways you can go to the academy route, which I applaud you for, but I had a college experience and it doesn't make it better or worse. It just means when I went into the military, it was very gradual. The first two years of ROTC in college, it's one credit hour and it's sort of, you get a little feel for what it's like and you owe them nothing. Your second two years, it's a three credit hour course. And at that point, it gets serious because that's when you have to sign your name to the dotted line saying you promise X number of years. Well, as a sophomore, you have to take the officer, Air Force officer qualifying test. So I took this qualifying test and I'm thinking of going in and being security forces, uh, going to military police and follow what everyone else is. I've got my criminology degree associates and I got a criminal justice degree. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do. Well, I took the test and it came back and they said, You're, you blew off the charts on the aviation side. You ever think about being a pilot? Hmm. And I, I, by that point, I had never even flown on a commercial aircraft in my life. <laughs> and so I was like, sure. You know, you know, if that's what the Air Force wants me to do, that's what I will do. And uh, then God starts getting involved in this. Uh, I go off to a a camp you have to go between your sophomore and junior year and i go to this thing i do very well in the leadership aspect of it and i'm talking to my family and there's no way i can afford my last two years so i'm planning on dropping out of college because it's getting too pricey i get a full ride from the air force full scholarship so i take the scholarship and of course that tax on a couple of years but uh i signed up to be a pilot and so now it's i got to sign this dotted line and it's for two years of college, one year of pilot training, and then I owe eight years after. So here I am in my low 20s signing a contract for 11 years yeah. of my life. And I, I mean, man, my hand's shaking. I was like, I, I don't know about this. I don't even know if I can sign a contract to pay car payments, let alone that. But uh, I signed on the dotted line. Well, all of a sudden I get tested. My eyesight is out of 2020. What? that takes you out of being a pilot. 
except I got a waiver for my eyesight. And it was driving the people at the ROTC detachment nuts how I'm just, all this stuff is falling on me. And it's not me hunting any of it down because I did not know. No one in my family had gone to college. No one was an officer. No one knew. It was just all dropping on me. Hmm. I go off to pilot training and I am still a cut up in a card and haven't changed any of it. I learned and I, I learned what it was to be in the Air Force. But Top Gun had come out at this time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so that was what, and I'm going to be a pilot. And the first thing I bought was my Corvette. So I've got my convertible Corvette. I go off. Everyone's got their Trans Ams, their Corvettes, their sports cars, and we go off the pilot training. And I noticed, you know, I wanted to be security forces. I was doing this because the Air Force told me to. So I'm sitting in there, and they tell us right off the bat, you're going to have a 40% attrition rate, which means look to your left and right. Most of them aren't going to be here. And we have to finish this course, and you're just watching people fall out. Everybody's pinging. They're all just, oh, what do I do if I don't become a pilot? And for me, it's like, I just want to serve. I, I want to do something. And if I don't make this, I don't make it. So I went through very comfortable. Now, I had really great hands and it used to bug the instructors because I could fly the mess out of the plane. But with my ADHD, I struggled when it came to exams, when it came to. So I, I really struggled and I actually washed out. And I got reinstated and the instructors are like, how are you back here? And the head, the head dude took me up for a flight and he made an evaluation based on how I flew, not how I tested. Hmm. And he said, put him back in. And so I was put back in and I graduated and uh, went on to my next plane and I could fly the mess out of it and I had fun. And I went off to my first assignment and my second assignment, and I was deploying all the time and I was flying all the time. Uh, I racked up 16 deployments all over the globe. Um, I have seen all of the Asian area, all of Southeast Asia, Southwest Asia, Europe. I, I've been to it all. And uh, it's, it's funny because I brought with me, it's called my little, it's a little playmate. It's a little cooler. That thing has been with me on every mission since the day I started. And I thought I'd have to eat lunch. So I brought lunch with my little playmate. But, um, and what, what's in there? Uh, well, see with my crew, I brought my normal in-flight lunch that I used to have. And I would fly with a crew of four and you're in this little cockpit. And uh, I always enjoyed the fact that I brought tuna and garlic sandwiches because you open it up and the smell is horrible. And they were stuck with it for hours. And I found great joy in that. But uh, I love to party and drink and I would be deployed so much. Uh, my common practice was I had this house that I owned. And whenever I was home, we would have a party on Saturday nights. And I had a cleaning crew come in on Sunday mornings. So I wake everybody up Sunday morning. We all go out to eat. And when we came home, the house was clean. Now, I was doing that because that was just me. And uh, I had great hands, could fly that plane. And one day, my squadron commander calls me in his office. We're deployed to Iraq. And uh, he, he was very angry at me. And he said his biggest concern during this deployment is getting everyone home safe, which is obvious. But he said, somebody's going to die in this, on this tour and it's going to be your fault. And that hit a nerve with me because I was like, how is that humanly possible that it's my fault? He said, you fly that plane right to its limit. 
and there are people trying to do the same thing you do and they don't have the skill set that you do, they're going to kill themselves out there trying to do what you do. And at first I thought it was awesome that he was saying it. And then for me to think about it and start reflecting on what I was and who I was. And I started talking to people and found out that there was this group called the Rat Pack. And they were a group of partiers in the squadron. And I was the head of the Rat Pack. I never knew there was such a thing as a Rat Pack, nor that I was the head of it. I just did what I wanted. And then I looked and saw how everybody was following me. And that's what he was so upset about, was that everyone would follow me. I would set up a uh, race down the side of a mountain in Crete in our uh, vehicles, and you had to run the vehicles backward in reverse down the mountain, down the side of the mountain. And we wrecked a few of the cars. We played bumper car with uh, jet skis out in the med just cause, and we would sink them. And I was just being me, and I didn't realize the carnage that was going with it of everybody following me. And so here I am as a young captain, and I'm realizing I gotta change things up. And about that time, I stepped back and realized most of it I don't recall, because I was in a fog, because I was drunk all the time, unless I was flying. And uh, I thought it, I needed to find God. And so I started praying, and I started looking and my wife shows up into my world similar with Chris, and that's where my life changed. And all of a sudden, I went from being a cut-up to trying to actually use the gifts that God had given me, that he had placed there. And that's when I realized he had set all this up, and then he probably sat there shaking his head going, when are you going to stop? Mm -hmm. When are you going to realize the gifts? And I started doing more than just flying, and I started leading. And my career took off. From that point, I was picked up by generals to be their assistants, to be protocol officer. Um, I received the nickname of uh, Midas because they started giving me projects that were failing and I would fix them. And as I would do that, they would give me bigger projects. Then they would give me units. They would give me organizations. They would give me squadrons. They would just keep giving me broken things for me to fix. And uh, about the time I reached Colonel, we already had our triplets and uh, life had changed a little bit and I was more focused on my family. Um, I was put on track for general, for the general officer track. And I did not want a person who was capable of doing that job to miss out on making general because I knew I was going to turn it down. So I removed myself from my general track general officer track and uh, caused a ripple because I had some generals who were backing me along the time. One in particular yelled at me. He, he just was so mad. And then when he was done yelling, he said, now I'm going to be your friend and you're making the right choice. Um, I had to do one more assignment though. And I was picked up to be the uh, chief of staff for air mobility command. And it's a two-star general position. They put me in there as a colonel to fix some problems that they had. And most of the people who reported to me were one-star generals. And most of them were my colleagues who had pinned on. So they had two reasons not to appreciate me. One was because I turned down going the track they did, and two, they had to report to a colonel. Hmm. Um, but uh, we came to an agreement on that after a little while. When I look back at what my, my family was and how they supported me, um, I see how my brothers and sisters have gone off to college, one becoming a lawyer, my sister becoming a teacher. We still stick together and tell stories about back when 
I was always taking sand out of my uh, swim trunks and I was the goofball Timmy Dumb. And uh, my brother lovingly calls me Colonel all the time because he's so proud of what I've accomplished. Um, at home, I'm still Timmy. Uh, my family has long since a lot of them passed. I've lost uh, three brothers, two sisters, my mother, father. And uh, there's always going to be a lot of loss in life, but it's what you make of life, as, you, as Chris was alluding to earlier. It's God has given us such precious gifts. And yes, we are all replaceable in everything except being a father and being a husband or being a mother. I uh, wouldn't change a thing in how I got to where I am. And now you're actually, you're, uh, you're pursuing, you're in a, a PhD program with or, yes. in organizational leadership, right? I am uh, a PhD candidate at Regent University, mm -hmm. and uh, I'm pursuing my degree in organizational leadership, and uh, my focus in that is on uh, human resource development, and it is to find and create tracks for organizations on how to progress their greatest resource, their humans, their people, uh, not to give them promotions, not to give them raises, but to help them in their life to better it. Because in doing so, you're going to create better people working for you who are more motivated to do what they're doing. You have a lot of experience doing that. Um, you know, one question I, I, I want to I wanna talk a little bit about uh, military culture and this idea of honor, but one question a lot, you know, and I don't know how much people from the military get this or maybe understand this, but people that are not in the military, you know, we grow up watching the GI Joe commando Rambo and there's kind of this, kind of this in awe, you know, war. So when you actually talk to people that actually have been in the military, that have been in war, it's kind of, uh, there's this curiosity of kind of wanting to know, wow, this is real. You know, like this was a real experience to me. What you 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 deployed sixteen times. You said yes. to him, and, and you alluded to this already, Chris, a little bit. But I mean, what is that like when you get the call and you know you're going you're going into to war? I mean, how do you manage? That's a pretty daunting, I think, situation. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two answers to that question. I can only answer one of them because I think. One part of that question is, what's it like the first time? And then the other part, which probably Tim can answer better than I do, is what's it like the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth time, right? I think you talked about kind of that um, naivete that is kind of, you know, our culture creates messages and it creates pictures of things and they're often very false pictures. And honestly, the the popular expression of war is a false expression that's why you see such a division between combat veterans and people who've never served in combat um especially those who've experienced the the real traumatic events of taking a life or having someone close to them lose their life there's such a divide because we live in we our popular culture gives us this false impression of what war is like and we kind of are more like fans of it, like go USA, Team USA, Army, Navy, right, right. But um, but when you've actually experienced it, um, there's a there's kind of a different a different reality to it. Now the reason I bring that up is the first time you deploy, you're coming out of that kind of false picture of it. 
So my experience of it was, if you go back to September 11th, um, I was in a pre-command course on September 11th, and we were just finishing up our physical training, and then the towers came down. And in in my job, I was, at the time was at a core level operations kind of simulation job. So immediately they started war games for kind of preparing to fight a battle, right? There's an op tempo and the kind of planning for that. And, you know, at that point, you know, as a young infantry officer, I'm like, man, I am really in, in the wrong job. Um, some of the guys I went to ranger school, they, um, they, they did the last airborne jump that has happened um, into Afghanistan at the beginning of the, uh, uh, beginning of the Afghan war. When you think about that, like I, you have this, when you're trained as a young soldier, you have this desire, like they actually, the army is able to somehow wire you to where you have a desire to go to war. So you fast forward about 11 months later as the buildup to the war in Iraq was going on and I was an infantry company commander. Um, the war plan for Iraq was that we, our unit, our division was supposed to attack from out of Southern Turkey into Iraq. So we were preparing for that. We were deploying for it. And well, because of political machinations, basically, Turkey said we couldn't bring ground troops through Iraq. So, I mean, through through Turkey into Iraq. So they had to kind of reroute our division. And, you know, it takes a long time to move an army division. So they had to put them on ships. And we ended up going back in through Kuwait. So we ended up actually getting to Iraq um, about 30 days after the actual war kicked off. And so the heaviest fighting was done. But back to your point on, on, on the whole idea of what's it like the first time, when the uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom kicked off and I saw a mechanized infantry division from the 3rd Infantry Division going through the berm to attack, like my feeling then was, man, I'm in the wrong spot. So then I'll fast forward and then hand over to, to Tim because then you actually go into combat and you do your deployment and you do your service and you kind of look at what's going on and war is chaotic. I mean, if you look at both Afghanistan and Iraq, there's sometimes a, dis a discontinuity between the purpose we, we go over there for and the reality on the ground. And you're really just in a chaotic environment trying to keep your guys alive and trying to get home to your, to your, to your loved ones. So you return from that deployment and I think there's a few different reactions to it. For me, it, it really solidified um, that I was going to kind of focus on being a father and a husband, um, and I chose to get out of the military. I still love my service and would go back. My son is serving, and I hope that he has some of the same experiences that I do. Um, but to redeploy with that reality, both you know the trauma that happens in war, but then also really the frustration between what happens on the ground and the geopolitical purpose that we go over there to continue to deploy, I think is another question. I'll hand over to Tim on that because, okay, when you look at, when you look at those experiences from your deployments, you know, what's it like when you go back the second and the third and the fourth time? I'm a little bit older than Chris. So, uh, <laughs> I, when I went in and, uh, I showed up at my first base fully qualified to fly was when desert storm kicked off. And, uh, I was put on nuclear alert because there was uh, also another threat that was going on at the same time. Sorry, it's tough for me because uh, I have to struggle with what is classified top secret and what is not as I talk about those. Um, so I went just after the Gulf War had kicked off and I was part of uh, Northern Watch, Southern Watch, Vigilant Warrior where we were to keep Saddam at bay. 
And in doing so, there were a lot of people that said, oh, Gulf War's over. War's done, high five, and nothing for another 10 years. I spent 10 years in that desert. The Air Force spent 10 years in the desert in particular because we had to keep Saddam Hussein at bay. And he was brilliant as a leader. Uh, and I think that, you know, when you talk about honor, that is one thing that has to be brought up. There are so many people that think that an opinion in one way is all that matters. And that if you have a different view of it, then it's wrong. If you have a different view and you're not allowed to discuss it, or if you don't allow somebody else with a different view to discuss their argument, their position, you're never going to learn. You're never going to have iron sharpening iron hmm. and finding where the truth lie. As a professor at the Naval War College, I learned that, you know, history is written by the victor in many cases. But if you talk to the other side, you get their view on things. My opinion, Saddam Hussein was brilliant. He did what we called saber rattling. He would move his forces and he always did it just about three weeks before Thanksgiving, every year like clockwork. And what he would produce from that is what we lovingly called the hat trick because we would have to deploy for Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. Year after year, we were gone. And if I you know, could get in his mind, he probably was thinking, I'm going to wear them down. But what he didn't realize is the American resolve that wouldn't allow that to happen. But year after year, we were called. Uh, I reached a point in there where I was commanding a squadron, a uh, special ops unit that was going to be taking care of both Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. And deployments were just one after another. You were constantly going. Well, we're missing Christmas once again. And so my squadron, before we left, the group that was there, um, we came up with an awesome plan. And the actual active duty did not know it. It was the spouses who worked with it. And uh, my wife coordinated the whole thing. And what they did was they had every spouse get a gift for their active duty member that was going over. And they had a recorder, a camcorder set up. And they a video recorder, and they would talk into the camera to their loved one, and hold up the gift, and then hand it under the camera to somebody who would take it. We got the pallet; it went with us, and no one knew it was in the pallet. We set it aside, and on Christmas morning, I brought the whole squadron together. We turned on the television, and we had somebody who had the script of what order they were given. And they would sit under the TV because the TV was on one of those rolling carts. Yeah. And they would watch their spouse talk about them and how much they loved them. And the gift would go under the camera and the person on our end would take that gift and put it under the TV and hand it to them. Hmm. And it was like a bunch of kids because we'd all sit and wait for that person to open it. We'd pause the camera and we'd sit and we'd watch and everybody would laugh and love the different things that they got. Here are a bunch of grown men, grown women crying their eyes out because they got a piece of heaven that they haven't seen in a long time and a love that was associated with it. So it wears on you as the years go on. As my kids grew up and I watched them in chunks growing up sometimes, and they knew that daddy was going to protect them from the bad man. So the bad man never came home when they were little. When the towers fell, my children were born on September 10th. 
Mm, wow. In September 11th, we couldn't find anybody, nurses, nothing. And I walked out of our room and they're all staring at a TV and the first tower falls and my phone goes off and I am put on standby to deploy. My children, all prematurely born, triplets, are sitting in the intensive care unit at the hospital and I'm told I'm put on standby to deploy. And that's my job. My wife and I, when we got married, we came home from our cruise. The day I got home, I got a phone call. Tim, I need you to volunteer to deploy. I can't tell you where you're going. I can't tell you how long you're gonna be gone. And I said, boss, what if I don't volunteer? I just got home today. My wife doesn't know anything about the military. I have to get her signed in. I gotta get her processed. And he says, my wife will help your wife with that. I need you to deploy. I said, what if I don't volunteer? He goes, well, I'll be calling you back in an hour and I'll be mandating that you go. If you volunteer, you get to pick your crew. Well, who's going with you? If you don't, eh, you're stuck with whatever I put you with. And I said, sir, I volunteer. And my wife's staring at me. She goes, what did you volunteer for? I said, I can't tell you. I don't know how long I'll be gone, but just watch the television, watch CNN, see what's going on. We're about a week into it, and it was the first NATO strike into former Bosnia-Herzegovina. And uh, I was part of the uh, strike package for that. And she saw it on TV, and I called her, and we, they liked us to call so that they know that we're safe. We don't tell them anything. Sometimes it's, hi, I love you. So I call, and I, t I said, hi. And she goes, I know where you are. I said, please don't say anything over an open line. Don't, don't say a thing. And that is the life that we led during that time. Um, the first one is exciting. After that, it's you do it for duty, honor, and country. The fun goes out of it right quickly, especially when you have family at home. And we have the easier side of it. I couldn't grasp why when I would go on leave home to visit my parents, why every time I left, they cried. Because they watched all their other siblings leave, or their siblings, their, their children leave, and it was high. They all lived near each other. I not only was gone, but they knew I was going to some dangerous places. And you talked about you know, the experience, Chris, of seeing different parts of the world. We all want our children to have better than us. I mean, I want my children to beat me at everything. My one son, we were doing squats one day, and he beat me at squats, and my other kids were like, how'd that feel to have your son beating you? I said, it's exhilarating. I want you guys to succeed me in everything in life. And my daughter said she was thinking about joining the military as security forces. And my word to her was, I've done enough service for three generations. Because <laughs> I didn't want that. Not just because she was my daughter, but because she's my child. And so Chris... Wow, that's a hard one, brother, because uh, to, to see that in you will be that parent crying when your child leaves, and I'm too selfish for it, but uh, they'll never see the entire world. They'll never be to the hundreds of places I've been to, seen and talked to people of every kind of culture, but the only, that only happens if you're wealthy or in the military, and so in that way, I really am okay with my children not succeeding me in what I've well, done. I would like to uh, bring up one more point about something, you know, Chris was talking about when we talk about serving, uh, we talked about what 
Chris and I feel in a way we serve. And Chris hit on the point of the rest of the country. Um, it's away from here. It's where it's supposed to be. It's in some other part of the world. And the reason our troops go there is so that the other people don't come here. Mm -hmm. It's to protect our country. But it has a negative effect associated with it. First off, when you have something like aviation that can get there in the blink of an eye, we can, we can have iron on targets. We can get the Marines in really fast. Um, when you look at the speed at which we can do something, it's not a, the buildup. The big ones that Chris talked about, yeah, there's a buildup associated with it. And as he was talking, people had already gotten engaged. Well, that's because the Air Force will fly small units and they're really quick to get started. The big stuff, they have to take ships to get there. But when you look at the people who live in the, the citizenry of the United States, this Joe on the street, I, I bring one item up to you. And it's for any of you, uh, you know, Sunshine, Bill, neither of you served and you sit here. So I want you to think about this and it kind of drills at home. 20 soldiers are killed in Afghanistan. Now, how does that make you feel? A woman is found murdered in a house in your neighborhood. Why that one strikes more fear, more concern, more worry, more everything, your emotions flow more on the second, is for two reasons. One, it's close to home, and two, it's unexpected. You expect soldiers to die. Some are going to die. Mm -hmm. It's expected, okay, it's part of it. It turns what we do for service, what the military does, into a video game mm -hmm. for most people. They are separated from it in such a way that is almost, it's not even headlines, the service that they do. And these are people who, as we're approaching uh, yet another uh, holiday for not our veterans, but it is a memorial day for those who have passed, who have given the ultimate sacrifice. Those people did so. There's less to do about it than there was in the past when it was a full onslaught of the entire industry of the United States, such as World War II. Since then, there has not been a war. All of them are conflicts, and the media feeds into it in some ways, and it turns it into a video game. So I'm sure you care about those 20 people, and your heart goes out to them. But as for how you, it makes you feel, that's totally different than Janet down the street dying, being murdered. So that's right there, and it was unexpected. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's a real valid valid point. You know, and I think the the disassociation that we um, like civilians, I guess you want to say, <laughs> have with that and not really understanding, um, um, unless you have someone that you're related to over there, you know, in war, maybe there's some sort of a misunderstanding or lack of appreciation or just a lack of just. No, I mean, just not knowing, just not um, understanding uh, maybe the sacrifice. And that's why I've appreciated y'all sharing your stories, different experiences in there, um, even uh, about your, your deployments. Because I think that sometimes people, that was one of the things I was, I was wanting to, to ask you guys, but you kind of answered it. Just kind of maybe the misconceptions that people have um, about military. But one of the things you did say uh Tim, you talked about when you were in a two-star general position, I think you were saying, and yes. there was somebody that was a one-star general 
Yes. Reporting to you. They have a higher rank than you, but not in that position. Correct. Yeah. So can you guys describe the culture of the military? I mean, obviously you guys were, you know, you talked about race and stuff like that, but you know, how important was culture to the military? How did that shape and define that? And I ask that question because we, you know, where does honor fit within that culture? Cause we've kind of going to talk about this thing about honor, but Describe the culture of the military and how important culture is. I mean, culture is the method by which you get groups of people to do things. The The military culture is very intentionally crafted to take individuals and to get them to put either duty or their comrades before themselves. That's not natural, especially in American society, to put anything or anyone else above yourself. And the military intentionally indoctrinates people to really two things to, to put um, their obligation before the way they feel and then more specifically how to not get rid of fear because no one's fearless but how to operate and and do your duty under conditions that cause you to cause you to be fearful that's what they're intending to do with the culture but realize you know we're all Americans so there's actually an overlap between American culture and the military culture. And so when I describe that first method of preparing people to um, follow orders and do things that they would normally not do, that kind of creates this mindset that like we're transforming people out of being Americans. But there's, there's this real kind of crossover in the culture. And what I mean is when you actually get around a bunch of soldiers if they take off their uniforms and let their hair grow out, you would just honestly feel like you're interacting with a lot of other young people. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of, you know, when you put your uniform on and when you go to do your duty that you start to see a little bit of a difference. And it's also when you look at that interplay between the culture that our soldiers come from and the culture you try to create in the military, realize that there's an overlap. And um, I learned this term actually from our pastor, Pastor Mark. He talked about the term syncretism. Syncretism is when you have one set of cultural values and you have another set of cultural values and they mix together and form a mixed set of cultural values. Pastor Mark talks about in, a terms, in terms of the Christian faith. If we look at the values of Jesus Christ as expressed in scripture, they are very different from the values of the American culture through which people come to Christ. And so you end up with a syncretism in even the culture of Christians here in America, where we mix some of the things of our upbringing as Americans, and we kind of mix it with what the Bible teaches us. And so, you know, we see that dynamic as believers. We also see that dynamic in the military. So I just think it's really interesting to, to think about that. Um, in the end, when you look at all the cultural things, all truth is God's truth. And wherever a culture aligns with God's truth, that is something stable. That's a rock that you can build on. Um, I, I was not as mature a believer when I was in the military, but I will tell you that if I had to pick one culture and I just read the scripture and how Jesus told me to act, that I would bring light into whatever culture I'm in. So, um, you know, I think the big thing is just the mixing of cultures is, is what we see there. And, you know, Paul actually exemplified that. 
he, he was able to change. He was able to adjust in whatever culture he was in. Because as he saw it, he was tasked to bring the word of Christ to the world. And you can't bring it to them by being a certain type of person. So he was actually more of a chameleon. And wherever he would go, he would change the way he would act. He would say things that normally he wouldn't say in order to get into the trust and the love and the acceptance of people so that he could spread the word of Christ from that position. But when you talk about the military and where we come from, I, I listened to what you were saying and, you know, they let the hair grow and they'll just fit in just as well. It's a tough one for me because there is a certain point of that that it stops when you're when that indoctrination starts when you first come in there's a point where all of a sudden that is who you are uh, as an example i was in far longer i was in 25 years i went from being a kid to rotc to the military fast forward 25 years later no part of my adult life was outside of the military when I came into the civilian world, I struggled. And I say it past tense and I shouldn't. I struggle today in the civilian world. This culture is different than the culture I grew up in. I serve to protect a culture that, although they say thank you for my service, oftentimes behind closed doors will say, please stop with the way that you are because I would carry honor. I would be told, you need to change the numbers on what you're reporting, and I refuse. There was a sense that went on because of the values that were established with us, which are duty, honor, country. The best for our country, what will make it the best. And in the civilian world, not in all cases, it's the Benjamins. And it's a, a shift that I today still struggle with. When I look at the culture that we live in today, when a person is held up because they won big brother and they win big brother because they know how to lie the best and be deceitful and dishonest. And that is considered a capability that is heralded. I struggle with that. When we talk about military culture, our culture can go all the way back to Frederick the Great. Frederick the Great realized he had to bring into the world, into an army, a bunch of criminals, farmers, and people who were of the lower class. And so he put together a structure, a hierarchy structure, and he developed an army that was very formidable. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the great. But anyway, um, this has gone through and all the way through into the United States. And the United States has used it in their military and also in business world. They use the same hierarchy. But uh, in doing so, we have learned that there is a reporting process, that there is a standard way of doing things. And Chris, you talked about, uh, you know, fear. And you talked about, you know, what we in the military have dealt with. There's also a common misconception in the civilian world that a person who is brave a person who is a hero does not have fear. That courage is a person without fear. Courage is actually, a person who's courageous actually is afraid, 
but is able to handle that fear, is able to set that fear aside and continue with the mission that needs to be done at that moment. It doesn't mean it's a military person. When you look at first responders, when you look at all the people in the medical field who when uh, COVID-19 hit, that they went in there and they bridged that gap because they had to serve and help people in the face of fear, in the face of getting it themselves. There are a lot of courageous people that are out there. It is a natural instinct, flight or fight. The normal instinct is flight. You're going to get out of there. If flight is not an option is when fight would kick in. The human being has a separate portion associated with that. They have an imagination. So a human can look at something and say, the worst possible thing that can happen is this. And then they build that and they say that is the possibility that's going to happen and they are afraid of it. And so they take no action because of their own imagination. It is something that is in us that we need to have the discipline to set aside. Most fear because we don't face normal dangers most of our life. Most of the fears that we have are imagined by ourselves. And if you take the time to put the discipline in to set those fears aside, it is amazing what you can do in life. I'm afraid, you know, I'm going to start this business, but I'm afraid it's going to fail. So you don't start it. I'm going to, you know, reach out with this woman and ask her on a date, but I'm afraid she's going to say no. So you miss that opportunity that God gave you. And we do it to ourselves. And it just takes courage to get past it. We all have it. When we talk about honor, everybody is born with honor. Biblically, we are told to honor our mother and father. If we are supposed to honor our mother and father, we must have honor in order to know what honor is in order to do that. So we each have honor. Some choose to ignore it. Some choose to do nothing with it except occasionally tell the truth. And other people cultivate it. In the military, we are trained to cultivate our honor. We are trained to know what is right, do what is right, be what is right in the middle of it. It is not just enough that you do what's right. You have to be seen as doing what's right in order to keep people supporting your position, especially as a commander. You could be doing everything right, but if it comes out and it looks like you're doing things that are wrong, people aren't going to follow you in that. And I firmly know that Chris isn't going to agree with every bit of this, because even though this is something that is only on uh, voice, I can see him right now. And, and that face he's making right at me. Well, I'm just, I'm just thinking, because like if I, if I listen to this podcast, am I going to somehow come out of it thinking that like people who are mil- serving the military are somehow better? Like, and I, and I wonder about that because the main thing that I want to bring out is like, we always have to go to the Bible to parse these things. And we're called <laughs> to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, not to be a super soldier, not to be a better person to look up to. And like we, ha- when it comes to being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, people in the military are no better than anyone else because we look at our perfect savior and he is perfect at the things that we value culturally, and he's perfect at the things that we don't. 
So if we listen to this and think, I mean, Tim, you're a remarkable man, a remarkable leader. I would want to follow you and work with you. I try my best to be the best that I can be, but I know that I am not fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And my calling is to discern in the Bible where I do not follow Christ and conform to his image. And my calling is to change that because that's where God has given me sovereignty over myself. To the extent that I change it, I might better reflect Christ. People might see Christ and then desire to know Christ. And I just want to really make sure that we emphasize that the military is like any other human organization. It has objectives and methods by which it goes about accomplishing its mission. And its mission is not the furtherance of the kingdom of God. So I just want to make sure that as we look through that as Christians, and this is true of any profession or vocation you're in, whether you're in business or whether you're in medicine or whether you're in banking, these are man-made institutions and they're, they're seldom about advancing the biblical message of the kingdom of God as expressed by Jesus Christ. They're often predominantly furthering the effects of the effects of man. So while I love the military and everything it taught me and some of the things it built in me so that I could maybe potentially be useful in the service to God in the future, I just really want to make sure that we don't think that in any way that we are somehow better or superior or, or to those who don't serve because we just have a different set of problems when it comes to being conformed to Jesus's image. Well, don't, uh, yeah, don't uh, misunderstand me, uh, those listening and those here at the table. Uh, I am in no way saying that a military person is better than someone who is not military. I, I'm just pointing out certain aspects that are cultivated. They're not only cultivated in the military, they're cultivated in other areas as well. I'm just singling out one as an example of that. As you look at first responders and you look at, there are a ton of heroes that are out there in every facet of life. It isn't always a first responder or a military member or any one of that. They're not always the ones that run into the burning building if somebody is in danger. I think you're right. There are a number of other people that do so as well. So how do y'all take, for instance, like you've talked about these, these characteristics that you've learned in the military like you've learned honor you've learned order you've learned structure and then chris you talk about as christian men advancing the kingdom of christ so you're taking these skills that you've learned in the military this lifestyle that you've learned in the military the gospel of christ and how you look at the world we're in do you find yourself saying i know what to do here i got the skill set I got the passion of Christ. I'm putting these together and I want to phone up the president of the United States and here's the game plan. So, I mean, do you ever feel that burning up in you as you look at our world on fire? Not, um, you know, not just here in the United States, but the globe and you see it on fire and you say, I know how to do this. I have a solution. I have a plan because I I look at both of y'all. And as I've been around both of y'all, I see a lot of um, y'all are problem solvers, you're leaders. And so, you know, do you, and you've both been in these campaigns, you've been part of Air Force, you know, these package deals that, that take care of situations that are far beyond anything that we'll ever um, experience. So do you like want to, do 
you feel like I, I've got the solution? So, um, <laughs> I mean, it's, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think sunshine, like in the context of my vocation, my professional vocation at work, I do kind of take that approach. Like, you know, I, I work for Johnson and Johnson. I'm looking at the medical device business. I, I kind of look at things. I do take that kind of hands-on approach. Hey, I would call the president of the company. I would be very happy to call the president of the company and say exactly what we need to do. But when I step into the context of the big picture, you know, I mean, I've learned so much from you and from you and Bill, from Sunshine and Bill Falk, right? And from Mark Dean over the course of my discipleship here at Siena Ranch Baptist Church. And, um, and one of the things I learned is we have to live our lives in the context of the big story of God. So here's why I would not want to call the president of the United States. Because if I, I know the big story of God and the big story of God says the nations of man are not going to be the solution. The big story of God says it's individual people surrendering their hearts and lives to Jesus and then taking the lessons we talked about on this podcast about going forward and doing the right thing in fear. How often does our fear keep us from witnessing to Jesus Christ? Amen. How often does our fear of losing a job keep us buttoned up to where we are the people of the field, you know, when the parable of a sower I, I, the worries and concerns of this life will keep you from bearing fruit for Christ. So my answer to it is it's, it's greater personal sacrifice and discipleship so that, again, I reflect Christ better where I'm at, and nothing can compete with Jesus Christ. The question is, is how much of a dimmer do I put on Jesus because of either fear or pragmatism or whatever? So I, I do not think there is any solution to the problems of the world that can come through our political leadership. Um, I think that as citizens, we have to try to do the right thing. It doesn't mean we divorce ourselves. We're not, we're not called to step out of things. We're caused to do our best to represent Christ wherever we're at, but we should never deceive ourselves and think that a political solution is ever going to accomplish what God has said is going to be accomplished in his big picture. He says the world is going Jesus has told us there's going to be a judgment. Jesus has told us that people may, will not know Christ. He's told us about all the things of human selfishness and nations that are going to lead to really the end of the things of man. It's, it's told us. I mean, if you believe in Scripture, that's a part of it. So then how do you keep your hope? And how do you continue to reflect Jesus where you're at? Because we also have the hope and the answer. And I tell people that... The biggest thing my faith has given me is the ability to always press forward in doing the right thing while simultaneously knowing that to a certain extent, my efforts will be in vain. But I can pick up the next morning and go again because I have the hope of Jesus. I'm animated by Jesus and I have to keep trying to reflect him and try to do the right thing where I'm at. But I also know that nothing of man is actually going to change the story that God has laid out in scripture for us. When we talked about courage a little bit ago and you said, well, you know, we should be striving for Christ. There is no more courageous person, human as he was in human form, than Jesus. Because where we imagine the worst possible thing happening, he knew it was going to happen. And he had the ability to stop it at any time. Yet he hung on that cross in the most worst way a person can die, the torturous way that he died. And he did it because of his love for us. So I try to emulate courageously in that way as well. 
because Jesus is my ultimate example of the courage that's out there. Um, when I look at this world and the question can be asked, well, who do you serve? You know, there's God and then there's your nation, your patriotism that goes with it. God knew that. His son sat down and he told us that in Ephesians. He talked about serve wholeheartedly, whole, whole, yeah, I'll say that word, wholeheartedly, <laughs> as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one of you whatever good they do. Well, how do we divide between serving and, you know, when you look at man or serving God, serving Caesar, give unto Caesar what is Caesar and give unto the Lord what is his. Throughout Scripture, Jesus was tested. Throughout Scripture, he kept bringing back to it. The two can blend together in a manner of what you should do with your life. You serve both. And you serve both proudly. But they are separate. And as you said, Jesus was able to foretell everything that was coming and to be foretold all the way to we are not going to be here at some point and that there is a judgment coming. So if he was right 99.9% .9 of the time, I'm giving him benefit of the doubt that the last one that's coming is going to happen. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when, when I look at those, how do I look at honor in life? It's not by the military taught me honor. It is because I was told through Matthew, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. That through our honor, we be truthful. Yes mean is being yes doesn't just mean as simplistic as it is because anything other is evil is stated as well. It is that what I say my word is my bond. If I, will do so, if I say I will do something, I will go to the ends of the earth to do that. In my life, I look at it as if I am five minutes late, I am five minutes, or if I'm five minutes early, I am five minutes late because it is that important to me. I put people before myself because Christ put all of us before himself. Hey everyone, uh, we have had such a great conversation that we've actually decided to, to cut in here and turn this into two different episodes. So um, I hope you enjoyed the episode. Next week is the second half of this conversation as we continue to talk about honor and patriotism. Uh, you don't want to miss this second part. Again, hope you enjoyed the show. Be sure to hit the subscribe button to get all the latest content and y'all take care and God bless.